It was like a, a miracle, you know, it's like finding what you're supposed to do. Not everybody gets to do that. And it was like, I knew, like I knew other things you don't always know for sure. But I was like this, I'm going to do this. I don't know how, but I'm going to do it. And, and here I am 21 years later. What does it take to become a successful writer or artist? There are some destructive myths out there about what a creative career is supposed to look like. And we're kept in our lane by the undermining belief that, as artists, we're somehow incapable of building autonomous, sustainable careers if we choose the work that's closest to our hearts. So we're going to tear down those myths and get the truth by going to the source. Incredible professional creatives who followed every path but the expected one to success on their own terms. I'm cartoonist, author, and coach for creatives, Jessica Abel, and this is The Autonomous Creative. Our guest today, Martha Rich, is a commercial and fine artist who took a long and circuitous route through many day jobs, including workman's comp insurance, a hotel front desk clerk, repo woman, to pivot to an art career at the age of 37. Now, Martha makes a full-time living as an artist making work that brings her joy. And her secret to building an absolutely custom, autonomous, creative life? Well, you'll find out more in the episode. But short version, when bad things happened in her life, and they did with regularity, she's not magical, instead of curling into a defensive crouch, she saw opportunities to rethink her assumptions about how her life should look, and instead take big leaps into new ways of living and working. Over and over, Martha took a flyer on something untested. She took risks that others would find really scary. And every time she landed on her feet in some new place, it taught her to trust herself. Successfully navigating so many life pivots, she came to trust that she can and will continue to land on her feet. Acting with courage before confidence taught Martha that optimism is a good plan. Let's get into the interview right after this message. What does it really take to make it as a creative? This is the burning question that's driven me for forever, really. I used to have to try to ferret out the answers one by one when I got a chance to hang out with a fellow artist or writer, and when I judged it safe enough to ask that delicate question, we're all dying to know the answer to. How do you make it work? Every guest I've interviewed so far has mentioned this. One of the secrets to how they've gotten as far as they have is that they've asked every creative pro they met every chance they got. Asking the question often enough is a game changer. We learn so much each time, starting with the fact that whatever we thought was working for that person, we were probably wrong. We each imagine the other person has some kind of secret and that they've made the leap over the giant chasm between beginner and pro and feel safe on the other side. And inevitably, neither person feels that way at all and is amazed to realize that from the outside, they seem to have it all figured out. I'm pulling that seemingly taboo conversation out of the shadows on this show. It's also the conversation we take further every day inside the community of authentic visibility. Authentic Visibility is our group coaching program designed to help dedicated creatives who are very reasonably wary of marketing and promotion into powerful advocates for their vision and their work, setting the stage for huge career growth and a major role in the larger cultural conversation. Got a major project dropping soon and you're determined not to let it founder? Get the support you need to create a reasonable promotion plan that aligns with your goals and fits your life. Don't know how to talk about your work without squirming? You'll practice and refine your messaging in a safe, supportive space inside authentic visibility. Hate or fear social media and don't know what else to do? There are lots of options and you can workshop solutions that suit you and your approach with your peers. You can learn all about authentic visibility and get a sense of my teaching philosophy in a free 90-minute class specifically for creatives called How to Get People Wildly Obsessed with Your Work. And in it, you'll get a head start on developing clear, compelling language for sharing your work with your audience so that they get it and they want more. If you want your work to make its mark in the world, check out the free Wildly Obsessed class and supercharge your ability to connect with new fans in just 90 minutes. Go to jessicaable.com slash wildly and join the free class now. That's jessicaable.com slash wildly. Okay, let's start the show. I'm actually kind of busy right now. And 
I'm working on several projects at the same time. I'm doing some things for Blue Q, about four or five different new products that they're doing. And developing. so Blue Q is? Oh, Blue Q is this really great company that makes kind of funny gifts like socks and shopping bags. And they do lots of kitchen, like kitchen towels, but they all have kind of quirky, funny sayings on them. I've been working with them for a very long time. And right now we're working on, I think it's four new products. I'm also working on another project that's going to be, I don't know if I can talk about it, but it's like little animations, little funny animations that we're just starting out on. And it's turning out to be really interesting, but challenging because I have to draw people, which (laughs) I, I, I don't usually draw full, like full people. I mean, I can do it, but I haven't, I'm rusty. So I'm working on drawing again, people. And then I have a couple of shows coming up this year. So I rented another little studio just for sawing wood. So I have a show in Joshua Tree in December and then one in Waxahachie, Texas in September. I think that's it right now. Awesome. Yeah. That's great. It's so cool. It's such a wide variety of things. Yeah. And I'm also doing a book, but it's a longer project. Like I'm illustrating a book for somebody. It's crazy. Very cool. Do, do you bounce back and forth or? I, yeah, I am. Because some of them are faster than others. And it's just a matter of my nature is to put things off until the last minute. So it's really hard. I've got like a schedule now. And I, I got these plastic folders that I saw somebody else using and they're kind of cool. And I've got them all on my wall. So I know what I'm doing instead of just shuffling through the world. Like, oh, shoot, I've got a deadline tomorrow. (laughs) I mean, I've been doing this for a long time, but I'm not the most organized person. So I'm trying. Well, I think it's a good lesson that you don't have to be the most organized person and still get where you are now. I mean, I am super organized and do all this strategic teaching about how to organize projects and all this stuff. And I, I always find there are tons of people who don't need the level of organization that I have. You know, they just don't, they don't need it. They don't need what, what I do to get to their goals. It's like some subset of that is all you need in order to get there. I need a little bit of it, but it's, I think it's mainly because I'm juggling such different things for once. I don't usually have this much going on at the same time. So I kind of have to do it because it's stuff that I can't put off to the last minute, Mm -hmm. which is my true lazy nature. I mean, I'm, I'm a very busy, lazy person, if that makes sense. My true nature is to like not do work. Like I'd rather just sit around and, you know, do fun things, even though art is fun. But that's what I was going to say is I feel like this idea of, of you as lazy when you're just art stuff pours out of you at all times in different ways, different directions. And maybe that's fun. And so that feels lazy to you. But I think. No, I think my nature is lazy. But I force myself to go against my nature because it's fun. But like, if I was like a bazillionaire, I would just make like one piece of art every (laughs) month. (laughs) But I challenge myself to not be lazy because I mean, I I know lazy probably isn't the right word, but you know. Yeah, no, I get it. I get it that you want to just take your own time with it and just, just feel your way through it. It was funny. I had a conversation with my son the other day who's 11 and I was trying to get him to not play more video games and do something else. And he, he just got really, not really upset, but just tense, you know, emotionally tense. And he's like, it's just so, it's easier. And I was like, yeah, it is easier. It's easier to have fun when somebody's feeding it to you. Do something hard. You know, I get it. You know, it takes a certain amount of effort to actually put yourself into these things. But then the reward is so great, right? I mean, once yeah. you are in the middle of it. Yeah, but there, you know, there are days I'd rather go and eat nachos and have a margarita at Blue Corn with my friends. <laughs> I hear you. Um, so let's let's talk a little bit about how you got where you are now. That you actually do have all these really awesome, widely diverse projects running, and you're in demand. All this stuff. I mean, it takes it's a path, right? It takes a long time. So yeah. when I was reading through articles and things about your history and doing some research for this, it seems like there are a series of kind of pivotal encounters for you, both positive and negative, that redirected your course in a way. And the first one seems like your mom. Yeah. Was she a really big part of this? 
Yeah. So my mom, I grew up outside of Philly in the suburbs and we were kind of like hippies in the conservative bastion of Devon, Pennsylvania. And like our basement was like a craft room. So when we were little kids, me and my brother, she taught me how to develop film. She had an enlarger down there in a black room. And um, we did batik and macrame and tumbled rocks and just like creative stuff. So I've always been like, that was just normal, but I never really knew that it was something that you could do as a career. So I was doing the normal thing that you do when you grow up in the suburbs, you go to, you know, go to graduate from high school and then you go to a normal, like a regular college, you know, not an art school. I got a degree in sociology. I actually did take art classes at Denison University that I went to and it's kind of foggy now, but like somebody kind of discouraged me and said that I couldn't draw, which I was like, I mean, when you're 18 and you're just like kind of, you're just 18 and you're in college and there's cute boys on the quad and someone tells you you can't do something, you're like, you know, my lazy nature, I didn't fight back. I got an A in sociology 101 and I'm like, okay, then I'll major in that and I'll quit art. That was one of the other encounters I was going to Mentioned, oh. You've mentioned it in a few different times, which is this, an art professor who told you that you couldn't draw. Yeah. And maybe I just misunderstood this, but what I understood is you were sort of on an art path at that point in like regular college. Yeah. I, I mean, I did like the high school I went to also had like an art major and I did art in high school. And then I was at Denison and I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I took art. I was like, art, art major. But then I got discouraged. And then I just went with the thing that I did well in. I got the A and I'm like, oh, I'll do this. And then I became a sociology major and barely graduated. I got like a two point, you know, something. Because I'm not, I mean, I'm a, I'm smart. I got good grades in high school, but I was in, I was in college. My mom, this is another thing where my mom comes in. She had cancer while I was in college. So I was kind of just partying. It was like Frisbee and you know, I wasn't an A student anymore. And I just, I was just getting through and dealing with being in college and knowing your mom is sick and not knowing what's going to happen. I think that's why I just, I was like, I'm not going to focus on art. I'm just going to do what's easiest so I can still go to the frat house and have a kegger. (laughs) Um, So I kind of just, I mean, there's a safety in that, you know, I feel like the safety that you were heading towards the anxiety of losing your mom or potentially losing your mom it is going to make you head for safety. Somebody, an art professor telling you, you're not good at this and you know art's hard and it's supposed to be hard. Like, well, you know, maybe I need to go someplace that's a little easier, a little safer. Yeah, just writing, reading dry books and writing 20-page papers on a typewriter. That's what I did instead. (laughs) And and barely finishing things, but just, just getting by so I passed. And just getting out of there. And then after, right after I graduated, my mom came to my graduation. It was like one of the last things that she was able to do. And she, um, she passed away like three or four months later. So it was a weird time. I still don't, you know, it's a, it was a very strange thing to do when you're in your, your 20s and dealing with all these different changes. Like you're trying to move out and become somebody and then all this other stuff is happening and it's just... You know, I didn't think about art at that point. I just was like, okay, I got to go get a job somewhere Mm -hmm. doing whatever. I didn't really have a plan at all. But so you didn't have a plan. Did you have any idea of what success looked like to you then? Not necessarily right out of college, but within a couple of years out of college, did you have some idea of this is where I'm headed? This is what I want. Not necessarily in terms of a career goal, but like what your life looked like. I had absolutely no idea. I didn't know what I was going to do. I, you know, I just like, oh, where can I get a job? And uh, I got a job at the Sheraton Valley Forge as a front desk clerk. That was like, that's what I got. And I'm like, okay, well, I'll do this. And then as I worked there, I met a whole bunch of people. It's weird. This is probably where I learned how to be a, a networker. I would, I was at the front desk, so business people would come in and stay at the hotel. And then on the weekends, they had these weird fantasy suites. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. It's in Valley Forge, where at like the top of this tower, there's like a caveman room and space room. I don't know if they still have them. I think it's a casino now. I don't know, but it was very bizarre. So I dealt during the week, I would deal with business people 
And then on the weekends, it would be like people having like an anniversary in the caveman room. So it was very weird. I learned how to deal with people there and talk to people. And at one point I was like, I got to get out of this because it's, it's hard. The front desk is hard. People like throw things at you. And if the hotel's mm. booked, you get a businessman and he comes late. And then the only room left is a space room. They're like, they don't really like them because they're kind of weird. It's like, you know, a jacuzzi, there's no windows and a, <laughs> they're really funny. I have to go check to see if they still exist. But anyway, I learned how to deal with people there because you're dealing with all walks of life. There was also a, a, like a dinner theater there too. So you would get people coming to go see Lily Langtree's dinner theater. <laughs> I'm like, all these memories are coming back. I didn't expect that I was going to be talking about that. <laughs> I but didn't know we were going to go down to, this road at all. I know. And then how did you transition from that to the next thing? Because I know it wasn't um, a plan, but like what? I would talk, like business people would come in and I got to know who they were. And then one person offered me a job at, um, it was like a, a workman's compensation insurance company, PMA, but I can't remember what it stands for. But they had offices downtown, downtown Philly in Center City. And I was like, oh, I want to, I want to work in a office and be nine to five. Like that was all I cared about was nine to five. And I went into a training program for workman's compensation. And um, I was supposed to move to North Carolina. And then before the training program was up, I got fired. <laughs> every, every bad thing that's happened to me has been a blessing. So I was all set to leave. And I had given up my apartment in Chesterbrook. And I moved... I was supposed to move to North Carolina. And then I, I was like, oh, okay, well, I'm, what am I going to do now? My college roommate was from Atlanta and she said that I could move down and stay with her parents till I could find another job. My whole life has been a series of like bad things that have happened and, you know, that forces me to do something. I think if no bad things had happened to me, I would be in this like comfort zone and I would be like doing workman's compensation claims for the rest of my life because it was comfortable and easy. I mean, I don't know for a fact, but I feel like everything that I've done has been as a result of something bad, like getting fired, death, divorce, everything big has led me to make a big change. Because it's almost like, oh, well, I've got to do this now. So I'm like forced to change. Looking at it that way, I mean, all kinds of opportunities come out of weird yeah. things. I mean, they were good things that came out of COVID for some people. There are opportunities that come up as a result of disasters of various kinds. And yeah. seeing those opportunities and then walking into that, I think, is an interesting kind of takeaway from this for me. Instead of figuring out how to back up and batten down the hatches and, oh, my God, I lost my job. I got to find another job right now. Instead of that, giving yourself some space to do something different. Yeah. yeah I mean, and I also didn't have any plan. Like, I'm not a planner, too, I think. I realize well, now that I'm going back over my life, I realize I didn't plan a, pretty much hardly anything. So I ended up moving <laughs> to Atlanta just because somebody was like, oh, well, you can stay with my parents until you find an apartment, my friend Margaret. And um, I, I got a job at Ford Motor Credit Company. Well, first I got one, a one-day job where I was a headhunter. You know, like I was, it was like doing cold calls and I did, it, I did it for one day and I'm like, this is not for me. And I ended up, somehow I got a job at, Ford Motor Credit Company, collecting money for car payments. <laughs> that sounds and that grim. was, that was, well, yeah, I mean, it was, it was interesting. I ended up doing pretty well there. I was just talking to some people last night about this. It's very strange. So I would repossess cars and, you know, call people all day with a headset on and ask them for car payments. And then I looked at a lady sitting next to me in another cubicle. This place only let us have a plant and one picture in our desk area. And I was just like, this is, you know, I would draw little pictures that were like critical of the company and put them on post-it notes. And I got in trouble for that. But this lady next to, this lady next to me was like probably my age now and you could smoke inside and she just would smoke cigarettes with her headset on and just get money. And she was just like, but she was... She was there for a long time. She had a lot of, they, they gave you stock in Ford and she couldn't, she probably could never leave. And I'm like, if I don't get out of here now, I'm going to be that person. So here, I guess this is something I did without anything bad happening. I decided to leave on my own because I didn't want to become a cigarette smoking money collector. That doesn't seem like a fun thing. 
Right. So there are and, boundaries um, to this whole goal. Yeah. So I had one purpose. moment like, where I actually, edges. <laughs> yeah, I actually did something, but I was like, I, I loved magazines. I would always read magazines and I was in Atlanta and I'm like, I'm going to find the Atlanta magazine. I'm going to work at Atlanta magazine. And I just, I bugged them until they gave me a job. <laughs> and I got a job as the assistant to the business manager at Atlanta magazine. And it was like the best place to work. It was actually owned with the same person who owned at the time who owns Philadelphia magazine. And yeah, I, I learned about magazining and it was, I was more on the sales side and um, I ended up becoming the promotion manager for the magazine. So I got to put on events and parties like the best of Atlanta party. And that was really fun. And I met all the writers and art directors. And I kind of was like, that looks really cool over on that side. It was two sides of the building. They didn't mingle. They were pretty cool. The advertising people didn't get to tell the editorial people what to do and vice versa. So I met really, really interesting people. And I was like, I kind of want to be on that side. But I didn't get, I never got to that point. But that thought comes in later. I ended up getting married to a dude from Atlanta, from Marietta, Georgia. (laughs) And we ended up leaving Atlanta to go to Los Angeles so he could get his PhD in German philosophy. Wow. Which is a a barrel full of monkeys. No, it was fine. I mean, we went to Los Angeles and we moved there, I wouldn't there, say right? this if I didn't know the end of the story, but it sounds like a catch. <laughs> I mean, you know, he had his moments, but we moved to LA right as uh, OJ Simpson, the verdict went down and we had an apartment right like two blocks from where Nicole Simpson was murdered. And the restaurant that mm-hmm. she was at was right across from our apartment building. So we got there, we're like living in a, you know, a, a little LA apartment with a air mattress and there were like TV cameras all outside. So we like didn't go outside for a while. So it was interesting to go to Los Angeles at that point. And uh, I was married for a year and then we got divorced. And then I was like, I did all the things I'm supposed to do. I got married and I'm going to do what I want to do. And I was like, I want to be a designer. And I, so I enrolled in classes at UCLA extension in graphic design and it was, you know, it was okay. I, I think I had a knack for it. So it was like not that challenging. And I found out about Art Center College of Design. They also had a night program and it was a better program. And I started taking classes at night while I was working at Universal Studios Hollywood in the human resources department. And um, it was great. I was like, oh, there's an illustration class. I'm going to take that too. I took graphic design and illustration and the rest is history because I got an F in graphic design because I was like, this is not what I want to do. And I loved illustration so much. I just put all my focus in that. And the teachers were like, you, you should quit your job and go back to school. And I was like, okay, right. So do it. Pivot point. Yeah. Pivot point number three, right. This other influential brothers, right. The Clayton brothers, the Clayton brothers, they were really supportive and cool. And I didn't know how I was going to pay for it. And I, I managed to get some uh, scholarship because you put your work up and then they do- they dole out money little by little. And by the end, I had a free ride there. So it was interesting. It was a really great experience. I loved going to Art Center. It was like an amazing, magical time. I mean, it's so interesting to me that they would say that to you. I'm just speaking as somebody who teaches artists. The idea of telling somebody, oh, no, you should definitely go to school and drop everything in your life and go do this, go to art school. I mean, it was a different time, I know, but I don't know if I would do that. It's pretty, pretty remarkable, actually. Yeah, it was a different time. Like, I don't know if I would tell some, I don't know. I I would just be realistic about it. They were realistic, but they, I was, but I was like gung-ho, like overachiever. They would give me an assignment and I would just be like, oh my, this is so much fun. I love every minute of this. So I feel like they got that feeling and I was an older student. Everybody else was younger. I was 37 at the time. And I think maybe it's a little bit of a different situation than telling some like 18 year old or somebody super young, you know, I had, I had some lived experiences and was mature as they say. And I, I was like ready for it. So it worked. Yeah. I mean, I, I had a conversation about this just yesterday with a coaching group that I was leading where I was saying how much I enjoy teaching adults, like mid career people, because they, 
they know what they want and they want something. They're like, okay, I'm going to do it. Where 18 year olds are so self-protective sometimes they just don't, they're not able to throw themselves into something. They feel, and it's still the relationship, a kind of punitive relationship in some sense of like turn in your homework and you've got, and your grades are dropping and it doesn't work with art for me. It just feels like totally out of sync. So I, I love working with older students. I'm sure they were really excited to have you in class. Yeah, it was incredible. It was an incredible experience. And I learned so much there. And it was, I was like the most insecure because I was older than everybody, but none of the, none of the people who were younger than me cared that I was that old. I was the only one who cared. They were all just like, oh, yeah, Martha. You know, they didn't care that I was like 15 years older than them. So I was as old as the teachers. I was actually older than a few of the teachers. So it was, um, it was cool though. And, And pretty much all the teachers that I had there are my good friends now. Did you wonder though, I mean, because I get this question all the time, did you wonder, am I too old for this? I did wonder if I was too old, but I didn't think of it as like too old to make a career out of it. I just was like, what am I doing? But I didn't really think about it because I was having such a good time there. Like it was a miracle, you know, it's like finding what you're supposed to do. Not everybody gets to do that. And it was like, I knew, like I knew other things you don't always know for sure, but it was a certain, I was like this, I'm going to do this. If I, I don't know how, but I'm going to do it. And, and here I am 21 years later. Have you had a day job other than teaching in that period? Oh yeah. It was not, I was, I, I, it took me a long time to get to where I made enough money to do things. I've lived Mm. hand to mouth probably up until I moved to Philadelphia. So this is all recent. I didn't, I didn't bust out of art school, like in demand, because, you know, some people, they're in school and it's like they're the star of the school and they, they get a lot of attention and it, it can be really hard. You're like, I'm not, I'm not good. I'm, I can't draw hands. Like there's a lot of animator, really good drawers and drafts, drafts people in art school. But you don't have to be like that to make money. But it was hard because I, I was around people who were getting a lot of attention. So I felt very inadequate for a while. And I worked, I worked for Baxter Healthcare company that makes machines that take your blood out and take platelets out of your blood. It was really cool though, because it was, I was, I was around a lot of scientists who were just like artists. They're weird, just on a different, like the opposite side of the circle. They're like, Ooh, we're growing veins on eggs. And it was cool. (laughs) And there were these very weird books everywhere, like diseases. And we'd go through and look at the pictures and there's like people with a knee that has a worm being pulled out of it. It was like, "Ah!" It was fun. I mean, it was kind of fun. As I was an assistant, like an administrative assistant, but it was interesting. <laughs> but I'm yeah, not. Yeah, it sounds like you've, you've managed to find those little like nooks in all these different places you've worked, where you can find some people to connect with and ways to make it interesting. Find find what's interesting out of it in some ways. Yeah, there's, most people have something interesting about them. Which gets back to the relationship building and networking angle again. Yeah. So the other, the last person on my list of major pivot points, you just hinted at at one point, and I'm just wondering if this is, if I'm correct about this, but you talked about the influence of Esther Pearl Watson on you as a professor. Yeah. Oh, yeah. What was really interesting is that when I was at Art Center, they have a really good library filled with all kinds of books. And I would go in and just look at books just randomly. And I found, or somebody had told me about her work because she made a book while she was at Art Center about her sister. And I would get that book out and look at it. And the, she was like completely unique. It was very unique. And the colors were wonderful. And I would steal her color palette. Um, so I was like, I knew about her early on while I was at Art Center. And then when I graduated, I was like, I'm going to contact Esther Pearl Watson because I was going to, because you would go to New York to show your portfolio around and they lived in New York at the time. And I, I emailed her and they were, her and her husband, Mark Todd were super kind. And they're like, yes, come meet us and we'll give you advice about being an, an illustrator. So I went out there and met them in Brooklyn and now, I mean, now they're like family to me. I've shared a studio with them. I'm, they're really close friends. So just from contacting somebody from a book that I loved, I, I've made friends. And it was really yeah. cool. I know. I it lucked out because they, they ended up moving to Los Angeles. And mm-hmm. when I heard like they're moving to Los Angeles, I was like, oh, well, I'm going to throw a, part, a welcome party for you. Yeah. And then they started doing drawing nights at their house. And it was 
we've just become very good friends. I've traveled across the country with them a couple of times and I've taught with Esther and it was fate. And I guess, you know, just being a little bit of a, I had no, I was like, I'll contact people. I don't care. I'm going to go show my portfolio to people. And it took a while though, before I could make money to live on. That's for sure. Right. So that's what I wanted to ask you next is how did you, you said that you don't need to be a super drawer and know how to draw hands, for example, (laughs) to make money. So how did you learn how to make money? How did you figure that out? I didn't figure it out. What I did was, so I didn't get a lot of work at first and I would come up with projects for myself to keep me going. And also working at a job that wasn't art related was very helpful because you're motivated to, you know, I know a lot of people who go for illustration, then get like an art director job and they like it because it's creative, but I didn't want to be in an office anymore. So I was like, I'm going to work somewhere where I don't want to stay. And then I would make projects for myself. I would just get little jobs here and there. I sent out postcards. I would go to New York and go to the American Illustration Party and keep networking and constantly send out postcards. And I'd get work here and there. And then I did this thing where I was like making a piece of art every day for a year. I know that's like a thing everybody does now. I did it in 2006. I'm sure someone did it before that. But I made my own little blog. Like I designed it in Dreamweaver. And I posted a picture every day and wrote a little blurb about what I made. And then you could put those, this is when you could just put a PayPal button on your stuff. And I started doing that. And I don't know, somebody found me and it just started, people would buy the stuff. And they were just like, why? They were fast things. Like I didn't think too much. And I was just like, I'm going to draw whatever I'm inspired by today. And it, it um, changed the way I worked. I wasn't doing, you know, trying to do really traditional illustration anymore. And that I started getting a little bit more attention and just kept building on it and building. I did, I did a painting a day for a year. A couple of them I would cheat where I would do two in one day. Like if it was Christmas, I didn't want to do it. But <laughs> on the whole, I did a painting a day for a year. And, and that project, yeah, I sold them. Well, I have maybe one or two that were lame, like really, where I was just like, <laughs> and um, yeah, I, would, I sold them all. And it was kind of like, oh, and then I started meeting people who thought, what I was doing was interesting. And it was, it was also a networking thing because I started making friends with some of the people who would like, some people would buy like two or three things, people who have my same weird sense of humor. So I found like, you make the work that is you and it somehow gets out to the people who are into that. That makes sense. It makes total sense. I say that all the time. It's like, you have to, you have to get out there and do what you want to do. And be true to your own vision and opportunities open up. I mean, the fact that you're doing the things you're doing right now, all of these different, you know, the shows and the animations and whatever is because of you having such a distinctive voice, right? You're so clear about what, what it is that you will bring. And they're like, that is what we want. We want that. Yeah. So it, 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 it all happened just by keeping on doing stuff, constantly doing new things until something starts clicking and everything builds upon the thing that I did before. The thing that's even very weird is when I was a kid, I would do my own, I did my own magazine, like when in the seventies called Ye Old Continental Times. It was, I wrote it and illustrated it. So maybe I was, I should have just paid attention to that. And I did speech bubbles and all kinds of stuff. And it's like the stuff that I was doing then I'm kind of doing now still. It's still my same sense of humor and it's still... It's crazy. You're going to republish I mean, it? Cool. You're going to bring it out again? I don't know. <laughs> it, I do the show, world needs I to read this. It's really, it's really funny. Like there's a whole thing about <laughs> exercises to do and they're, it's ridiculous. But I have like a 12-year-old sense of humor still on the whole. It's a very it's – a, it's a sense of humor that communicates very well to large numbers of people. So I think it's going to be just fine. But what I love about your story about deciding to do this daily painting or daily drawing project and then selling the, just directly selling the things is that, you know, I remember 2006. I know what I was doing in 2006. I remember going through the same process of trying to become a a published illustrator that you were going through. I didn't go to school for it, but I was doing postcards and I was meeting people. I was living in New York and all this stuff. And that just like skipping around the gatekeepers is something I'm really interested in that you yeah. saw the value in creating your own project and, and just seeing it through independently without waiting for anybody to give you permission. Yeah. Well, you know, I didn't 
fit into any kind of one little space. So you just have to make your own thing happen. And I actually, I was very inspired by Mark and Esther because they're super, we're going to do it our way. We're making our own thing. We're making our own projects. They come up with ideas constantly. Like, they, like they're exhausting. They're so like always, <laughs> they're not lazy nature. They're the opposite. They don't know how to just like, you know, I, maybe I help them with that. You know, like you can be a little bit lazy right now. You don't have to do another <laughs> job today. <laughs> but um, they inspired me to come up with my own projects. They, I saw that they could do it. So just seeing someone else be able to do that, make your own way. Cause I was, you know, yeah. I wasn't lowbrow. I wasn't, you know, fancy illustration. I was kind of like just floating and not knowing what it was. I just did what I wanted to do. And I'm lucky yeah. that I was able to, not everybody can do that. I bet more people than realize it could though, you know, because yeah. I think you were just willing to, you, one of the things I see as a, as a theme here is that you're willing to take risks and they're safe risks, not crazy risks, but right. you're trying stuff that are, that is going to feel dangerous to other artists. It's going to feel challenging to them. And you're just like, yeah, I'm just going to do that. And that's, you know, whatever, like so-and-so said I could do it. So I'm going to do it. I, th I think that comes from, you know, where I did, I followed the rules of what you're supposed to do in, in like society rules. And then it didn't work out. So I'm like, well, then why am I following the rules like that? I was supposed to get married, have kids, work for, you know, some corporation and live in a nice house and raise kids in a specific suburban way. And luckily, fate came in and because I'm not supposed to do that. And then I realized you don't have to do it, which is hard because it's, it's scary to kind of do something that's a little bit out of the ordinary for your, wherever you're growing up. For sure. Yeah. I mean, I think too, your observation that every, every time something horrible would happen, and it happened plenty. It was not like you had a blessed life where nothing bad happened. Whenever that happened, you would land somewhere unexpected, go yeah. in some different direction. And sometimes it wasn't, it sounds like occasionally it wasn't amazing, but it was fine, you know, and, and interesting and different and you survived. And so as you go through this process, you, you start to trust that you're able to land on your yeah. feet. Once you take that first risk, yeah. Once you take the first big one, then it's a little bit easier to take another one. I mean, I've had many times in Philadelphia sitting at my friend Matt and Gina's house where they listened to me cry and say I was going to quit. So they're, they helped me stay focused on this. So, you know, there's yeah. been tears. There's been tears. I would be surprised if there weren't. I mean, who doesn't <laughs> have tears in this kind of path, you know? Given all that, what would you say is your, was your biggest mistake? if there is such a thing and what happened getting married <laughs> i don't i don't think of anything as a mistake because everything's a lesson and if i hadn't gotten married maybe i wouldn't have been brave enough to do the other stuff so i don't i, mean, I would guess my all right using credit cards without knowing you can pay them off every month that's a mistake mm. I, I had a moment where like one person didn't pay me and it spiraled me into financial chaos. So that would be a mistake. There was a time when I was just like living on credit cards. If you can pay them off every month, they're a tool, but if you can't, they're an evil. It's bad. Yeah. I mean, I guess I was kind of getting at both things, right? So this is an actual mistake, but also marrying this man yeah. was a big mistake. I'm sure it was incredibly painful for you. But on the other hand, that's why you were in LA. That's why you hit bottom. That's why you were like, screw it. I'm going to art school. Would you have felt freed enough and under enough pressure in some sense to do that if you hadn't made that quote unquote mistake? Yeah. I think, I actually now think that I would. I think I would have done, I think, because I forgot before that there was a, a job opening in LA before I got married and I applied for it. It was at like LA Style Magazine. So I like kind of wanted to go to LA anyhow. I feel like it's like that sliding doors movie. Where, you know, like the <laughs> mm -hmm. two different things, but you end up in the ultimately in the same place. I think I would have gone, I would have ended up doing this at some point somehow, no matter what. I mean, I can say that because there's no way to say otherwise. There's no way to prove that it wouldn't happen. But inside, right. I think that I, I would have just kept going towards this because it's what I like, it's what I like to do. And I would have found a way. This episode of The Autonomous Creative is brought to you by Authentic Visibility. I work with a lot of committed mid-career creatives who struggle to get their work seen. 
It feels crappy to put so much love and effort into making something, but when you introduce it in the real world, there's a whole lot of nothing as far as reaction. It's truly awful. And they're not looking for attention because they're egomaniacs. Art and creative work in general exists to communicate some set of ideas or thoughts or emotions from you, from inside your head to inside someone else's head in as intact a form as possible. But the truth is most creatives in their natural state are frankly pretty terrible at telling anyone why they should care about the work. It's not their fault though. It's how we teach people to create their best work by digging deep inside ourselves to come up with wonderful, original new ideas. And there is absolutely nothing wrong with that. The problem is that's where the process typically ends, creating, not communicating. As a creative, it's your job to build the whole complete connection, to build a bridge for the audience that they can use to easily cross over and understand the value of your work to them. And this kind of clarity and audience-focused language doesn't come easy to creatives. And that's why I put together a free class specifically for creatives, ridiculously named, How to Get People Wildly Obsessed with Your Work. And in it, I teach the key technique to flip your perspective 180 degrees and start to use your audience's point of view to inform how you share your work so that they'll get it. I also introduce our awesome program, Authentic Visibility, the audience growth program designed to turn highly skeptical and frankly, marketing sensitive creatives into powerful advocates for their vision and their work, setting the stage for huge career growth and a major role in the larger cultural conversation. So if you want your work to make its mark in the world, check out the free wildly obsessed class and supercharge your ability to connect with new fans in just 90 minutes. Go to jessicaable.com slash wildly and join the free class now. That's J-E-S-S-I-C-A-A-B-E-L dot com slash wildly. Now let's get back to the interview. So in the last, whatever, 10 years or so, you went back to grad school and you got an MFA. And now when you talk about your work and your bio, whatever you say, you're a commercial and fine artist. So I have a couple questions about that. Number one where's the line between these things? And number two, is this like a one-way street? You know, you go from being a commercial artist to being a fine artist. Can you go back and forth? Does it, you know, what what does that change for you? Um, Commercial art, someone pays you for a specific job. Fine art is what you do for fun and what you do on your own. So you were already doing that. Like you would say that what your project in 2006, when you were doing your own work for 365 days, that's a fine art project. Yeah, that was fine art. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would agree. I'm just, I'm just curious how you think about it. I think it's simple and for some people it's more complicated, but for me, it's like you get a job, you do something commercially, you get paid, you make something in your house just for fun. You don't know what's going to happen for that. And it's just yours. That's one thing I wasn't very good at it at my master's degree, like all the discussions. That's just not how my brain works. I'm very, I'm a simpleton. I'm like, I want to make something funny that makes me laugh or that's a really beautiful color. I'm going to experiment with that. It's it's gut. I follow my gut. But there's people who really like to, it's all about the concept and the discussion and what it's representing and that kind of thing. And that's awesome. It's just not me. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, you know, I work in an art school, so I see this all the time that there's, especially at the MFA level, but even at upper level BFA, there's this pressure to even for very straightforward observational art, which yours isn't, but there's a lot of that where I I work, to have some kind of conceptual underpinning for it, some reason that this is being expressed in this way. And then that sort of feels sometimes like it's the only valid reason to make this thing is because you have the idea of what it's supposed to mean in a larger kind of more abstract sense. I mean, that's that's the way it is at Penn too. It's just I think there's different there's different ways of making art. Yeah. Yeah, I, and I I mean I I came up with this to me mind-blowing thing a couple of summers ago when I was working on a project about professional practice professional development for undergrads trying to talk about what it is and stuff. And I had up an illustration program and suddenly I was like because I was trying to think what is illustration? You know, we're calling this illustration department. What is it? There's no boundaries to what and I, and I just had this moment where I was like it's art as a service. The yeah. way you can have software as a service, it's art as a service. It's art where you're you're putting your artistic brain in the service of to someone work. or something else. Yeah, I like that. To express something. And then versus art 
as a product. <laughs> yeah. to, to speak from a commercial point of view, that's fine art. If you make an object because you want to make it and then you sell it. You hope you sell it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. from a commercial point of view, there's still yeah. there's still commercial I mean, still commercialized art, but the way that you're using your artistic sensibility is totally different in those two modes. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. So I know you teach, I know you have contact with younger artists. What do you try to tell them that might help them along the path towards being satisfied with their artistic life? Well, I think one of the things that came from the pandemic for me with teaching online, it kind of like freed me from the normal teaching mode. It was like having a conversation with people in your house. And I was like, if you're not enjoying this, if you're not like having fun and having some joy in making art, you have to make time for that. Because I found a lot of people in art school are very driven about getting a portfolio piece and it just, it's so stressful and it's so like work and people forget about the playfulness and the joy that comes from making something. You know, sometimes it gets really frustrating because you're trying to make something and it's in your head and it's not coming out, but it's like the most important thing above everything else, I think, to be able to set aside time to make some joyful art or angry art or something that is purely just for you and not constantly like work, work, work. I think that's the main thing that I started teaching this time. I'm like, we should be having some fun. We should be making a mess. We should just, I mean, I know that's all that's happened throughout the years, but I'm teaching grad school and everybody's very serious about what they're doing. I made them have time to play. And I think it helped a little bit because it was such a stressful situation getting your degree while you're online and not having the same experience. But, you know, we came and made some dumb stuff. And sometimes the dumb stuff is what ends up making you money. I think it's hard. It's really hard to have people believe that because it's, there's not a direct, there's not like do this, this, and this, and you'll be successful. It's really hard because people want Mm -hmm. that. They want the formula, but there's really no formula. But one of the things I do is I take a class to Los Angeles and we just do studio visits and every single story you hear, there's one theme and it's people making something for themselves that has turned their career into something different. It's not the trying to be like a certain comic book artist or certain style over here. It was a moment where somebody made something that meant something to them, turned their career into something different. So, I mean, that is, it's it's just finding that and being able to recognize it while it's happening to you is the hard part. Yes. Yeah. Because I find that if you, if, if students are, if they're in it to try to make money, like how can I find the thing that's going to crack this nut? It's just a struggle. It has to come from some larger impulse on your part. Yeah. Being able to recognize it's the hard thing. Now I get like a feel when I can tell something's, or maybe I don't always know, but you just put it out there and sometimes you'll fail. Sometimes you won't. Yeah. That's the secret. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. Well, and the other secret that I want to talk about is, and we've referred to it a few times, is is just your talent for relationship building, your interest in relationship building, how networking has played a role in your life. Yeah. Networking networking is the one thing that has kept my career going, I think. Because I'm not, you know, Leonardo da Vinci of illustration. You know, I make some cool stuff, but I think my personality and just like talking to people and meeting people wherever I go has been helpful because then like one of these jobs that I got just recently, and I, this is from 2006, I did a paint, one of the paintings a day. Um, one of the people who hired me this time bought one of those paintings way back then. And just now I'm working with them. So I think mm-hmm. just always talking to people and connecting with people, it helps every, every, like long-term relationship because I work with people and it's all people that I've met through somebody else. Those are the most successful working relationships I have. And it's all just from, I'm, I'm good at like chatting people up, I think. Cause like, I, I think most people are interesting. But I, I always say most, cause there's a lot of people out there I would not talk to. I'm like, get away from me. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> I, you can just get a vibe off of somebody and it does, it really works. You know, you talk to one one person and you have a good experience and then they're like, oh, I met that, that lady who does the speech bubbles, you know, and then they tell someone else and it could happen 10 years later. 
That happened with mm-hmm. Blue Q too. I sent them cards way before they hired me. So it's also patience, persistence, patience, and just talking to people, but not talking to people like you want something from them, just talking to people because they seem like they're interesting. Mm-hmm. And maybe keeping track of it, like not necessarily yeah. in a formal way, but remembering, oh yeah, I did send stuff to Blue Q. These are the same people yeah. coming back. I used to keep track of it way more back in the day. I had like a spreadsheet where I'd be like, I sent out posts, you know, I, I was a little organized, but now I'm less so because I don't have as many people. I haven't been sending postcards out. I want to do that again. Well, and things come to you organically now because you yeah. have so many relationships and so many, so much history that stuff just rolls in your door. I'm sure there's lean periods, but you know. But yeah, last year. <laughs> <laughs> but... Yeah, it's been a long journey and um, I still pinch myself. I still can't believe that this is what I do. After, you know, working in Repo Woman, (laughs) I can't believe I did that too. I love that. Yeah. I did. I I sold uh, uh, subscriptions to the opera to cold calls. Yeah. That didn't last very long. Cold calls. That's the worst. Yeah. yeah. At night. (laughs) Is bad. <laughs> um, yeah, you reminded me of that when you talked about your, uh, you know, uh, telemarketing or tele. Uh, the yeah, the job. one. What was it? Headhunter. <laughs> Flashback to the basement of the Lyric Opera. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Builds character, right? <laughs> mm, I guess so. <laughs> like, who needs that uh, kind of character? Exactly, not the character I want. <laughs> well, you know, actually, it was good though because I can always collect. Nobody, everybody pays me. I'm not afraid to call someone up and be like, "Where's my paycheck? Where's my money?" Right? There's something good out of everything. Yeah, out of all of these different weird jobs. Like I, I heard you talking about that. And I was like, "Oh, she's got to be really good at negotiation and collections." You know, <laughs> I'm definitely good at that. No fear. Yeah. Well, there's still fear, but I'm good at it, overcoming it. I think that's a really good a good point that you don't have to be over the fear for it to be yeah. something to, something you can do. I mean, I was afraid to talk to you today. I was nervous at first. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I'm normal, right? <laughs> um, so we're gonna we're getting close to the top of the hour, and I want to have I have one question in here. I think maybe a second one's come in, so I just want to get in there and ask those before we run out of time. Peter asks. You are very consistent in your art and illustration. I think he's talking about fine art and illustration, just consistent styles between the two. Can you describe a specific project in two categories to help see the difference for you, I think, between what you see as fine art and what you see as illustration? Actually, I'm interpreting, but I think that's what it means. I don't see a difference. The only difference is if someone hires me. Like the art, the process is exactly the same. I mean, you know, there's more of a specific, like I have a specific thing to do for an illustration project. But I mean, I come at it the same way, I guess. Mm-hmm. It's it's all kind of the same in my brain, but one is just more directed. You know, if you're doing a specific story, you have to, you can't like, like a story about cookies, you can't paint a bra. I mean, I guess you could put <laughs> cookies on it, but you know, you can, um, I think that's the gist of the question. Yeah. And I think, I mean, what I would add to that, I think going from what we said earlier, what you said earlier is basically the reason for that, the reason there isn't really a distinction is that you went out there and did your own private projects. You did it your own way. And then that's what people then come to you for, what right. you want to do. Like people don't come to me not, to do like a realistic portrait now. Right. And even early on in your career, when you're doing cakes or whatever, and you're doing illustration commissions in a certain painted style or whatever, they would come for that painted style for objects, maybe not as refined as what you do now, but what you put out in the world is what people come to you for when people ask you to do stuff. So if you're doing your own projects that follow your own loves, then that's what people are going to come to you for because that's what they see. Yep. And if you put something up out there that you don't like to do, that's the thing everybody will hire you for. (laughs) Exactly. I call that my no cowboys rule. Yeah. This is a thing I teach my students all the time where it's like, if you don't like drawing cowboys, do not put a cowboy in your portfolio. Because the number one thing anybody's going to ask you for is a cowboy. Yep. The thing that you, <laughs> the thing that you don't like. Whatever you hate in your portfolio, that's what you're going to get hired for. So don't yes. put it in there. That's true. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've experienced that. Okay. One more question here. Jen says, she's a big fan, 
Her question oh, is, okay. would you recommend sending physical cards nowadays? What do you re- recommend is the best way to reach out to people, meaning our directors, I assume? I think maybe sending out cards, well, not right now, until you know that people have gone back to their offices. Like I wanted to send out cards, but then everybody was at home. So it would just sit somewhere. But I don't know. I like the idea of um, a personalized thing. Like there's somebody that you really want to work with. I know people have sent out like zines specifically for people. So I do think if you're, if there's somebody you are interested in working for, send them something that you've made that's unique. I want to kind of do that if I want to like branch out and maybe send something cool to an art director. You really love their work. I think yes. But until you know that everybody's gone back to their offices, otherwise it's just going to sit there and you're going to waste your postage. I also think, you know, going to events, there's lots of events and like, not right now, everything, this is for later when things are more, but like going to creative mornings or some kind of AIGA thing or go to New York, like meeting people is really the best way to keep it going. Yeah. I started to go to, to creative mornings when they were the year before everything closed down and I'm sure they'll come back pretty soon. Yeah. I did a talk actually there because I went and said, hey, I'd be interested in doing a talk. And so they said, okay. And so, you know, that's how it works. Yeah. Getting involved with local chapters of things. And it's, it's the way, I mean, maybe, maybe now's the time to like make the cool old portfolios that we used to do, like, and see if somebody will meet you once. It's all about non-pandemic times, but I think personalized stuff is the way to stand out. Cause I mean, how many emails do we all get? that you're just like, delete, delete, delete. It's hard to get attention on an email. Yeah. To stand out in that format is really difficult, I think. And so thinking creatively about how can you do something that's going to catch somebody's eye or get them to see like, oh, there's a brain behind here. It's not just something. Yeah. But the world needs images. That's not going to end. I feel like there's room for all of us. And now you don't have like one specific gatekeeper who is hiring everybody. You know, you might not be like a worldwide sensation, but you might be like, I'm like a smaller sensation in a smaller area. It could Mm -hmm. be a small sensation instead of the worldwide sensation. Right. And then there's still tons of opportunities and weird things you would never think of. You can't, you probably couldn't have, you know, half the things you've done in the last five or 10 years, you wouldn't have ever thought to pitch that. You know, somebody was like, I need a thing. Yeah. I'm a sock (laughs) designer now. Yes. I was like five years old. I'm like, mom, I want to be a sock designer when I grow up. (laughs) (laughs) Some people, you know, that's a thing. I know. I didn't even know it existed, but I don't know. I'm an optimistic person, even when things are horrible. I'm like, we might make it through this pandemic. (laughs) Something good's going to happen. I hope. I'm optimistic. I can feel that from you, but I also feel like you've you've learned the lessons in your life that optimism is a good plan. Yeah, it's helpful. <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's, it's actually helpful. Because if you're just like, nothing's ever going to go right ever again, it kind of does happen. I mean, everything stinks and I'm a, like nothing's going to go right. That doesn't really help too much. I mean, nobody yeah. really wants to hang around with that. Like, you're going to be hired by There's something. You also want to be pleasant to work with. And nobody wants to work with somebody who's like a stinker. Like, eh. <laughs> yes. I'm sorry, absolutely. I'm cracking myself up. Yeah. <laughs> well, that was amazing. Right. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you. Yeah, thank you for hanging out with me. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you, get to know you a yeah, little this bit. Is good. You're good. Um, at this. Where can people find you? My Instagram is Martha Rich 63. That's my art one. And then my, I have another one where I just post like weird stuff like in Philly, like the, three block long hoagie or no, it was a cheesesteak. That's Martha rich world. <laughs> Did you see that? The long yes, hoagie? Well, I saw the pictures of it. Yes. I was like, this is this really a hoagie when you have like, yeah, no, I mean, it wasn't because they weren't like hoagies, like stuck next to each other. <laughs> yeah. But it was cool. There was like helicopters flying over and we're like, what is, I'm not, mm-hmm. I hate helicopters. And then it was all about the long cheese. It's all about the hoagie. Yeah. Hoagie. I'm going to go get a hoagie. <laughs> I love that. Thanks, Martha. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today for The Autonomous Creative. Our show is produced by Matt Madden. Our production coordinator is Lucina Poyakandian. And our production assistant is Rhiannon Sunday. 
Music is by Matt Madden, and I'm your host, Jessica Abel. You can find all our takeaways, as well as the links and extras we mentioned today, plus transcripts in the show notes. Find everything you need at acpod.show. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And please take a sec to pop over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and review. And we absolutely love to hear your reactions and takeaways on Instagram. Tag us at Autonomous Creative. See you next time.